A very warm welcome to St Paul's Cathedral for what I'm confident will be a wonderful evening. My name is Paula Gooder and I'm the Chancellor here at St Paul's, which means that I oversee various parts of theology and learning within the life of the cathedral. In a moment, I will introduce Barbara to you as if she needs any introduction, but I will introduce her nevertheless. But before I do, let me explain how the evening will unfold. Barbara will speak for about half an hour, and then she and I will pick up a few questions together and explore on the back of her lecture. Then it will be over to you for questions, and she will respond to the questions that I put to her. I hope you appreciate that in a space like this, we can't ask questions quite as you might in another kind of space. So the way we do it is this. If you would like to ask Barbara a question, you can be thinking while she's talking. And there are two ways in which you can ask the question. You have a program and you can write your question on the back of the program and then raise it up at any point, and somebody will come and collect the question from you and take it to the table over there. Or you might prefer a more technological solution, which is that you can tweet your question. All you need to do is give, put the hashtag HolyEnvy. So hashtag HolyEnvy, all one word. And by the magic of technology, it will arrive at the computer over there, and they will send it to the computer over here. They will also type in the written questions. And then I will ask Barbara your questions. Um, I hope you appreciate I won't be able to ask her all of your questions, but I'll be able to ask her a portion of your questions. We will end the evening by 8 o'clock prompt at 8 o'clock. And then Barbara has very generously said that she's happy to sign her books for you. There is, however, a rider to that, which is that if all of you want her to sign your book, we will all be here past midnight. And our cathedral stewards and vergers have been here a lot of the day and will be tired and need to be released home to their beds. So she will sign until 8.45. Um, so if you are standing in the queue, please bear in mind that there is a limited amount of time. So you can't talk to Barbara yourself for half an hour because it won't be enough time for everybody. If, however, you would like a signed copy of her book but don't need her to sign it to you in person, you will find some signed copies over here on the bookstall and that will save you a lot of time. So your choice. You can buy a book already signed or you can buy an unsigned one and Barbara will sign it for you. Um, so at the end of the lecture, you can go to the bookstall if you choose and buy a book and Barbara will sit over there and sign her books for you. That's the details of the evening. Let me now introduce you to Barbara Brown-Taylor. Barbara is an Episcopal priest in the church in the United States and was for many years professor of religion at Piedmont College, Georgia. You will hear more about the college um, during the course of the evening. There she taught religion, an introduction to religion. And 
The topic that she's exploring this evening comes out of her experience of teaching religion for many, many years, world religions. I first came across Barbara when um, her editor and my editor, Christine, um, sent me a book and said, you have got to read this, it's brilliant. And she was right, it really was. It was called An Altar in the World, and I have been a massive fan ever since. And Barbara writes with warmth and with humour. She writes from the heart. And I know I'm not the only person who thinks that Barbara can put into words that thought I've always had but couldn't quite find the words for. So no pressure, Barbara. We have high expectations this evening. Please welcome Barbara Brown-Taylor. Thank you. Thank you so much. Brief prayer for me. Come Holy Ghost, our souls inspire and lighten us with your celestial fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. Be with us, we pray, in the name of all your beloved. Amen. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Be the change you seek in the world. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leave room for holy envy. Platitudes are lifesavers. That last one may not be as familiar to you as the first three. It comes from Christer Stendhal, Swedish bishop and biblical scholar, who proposed three rules of religious understanding between new neighbors of different faiths. The year was 1985. The Church of Sweden was a state church, Lutheran since the Reformation. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, barely 100 years old, was opening a grand new temple in a leafy suburb of Stockholm. There was more than a little local anxiety about the newcomers from Utah which was how Bishop Stendhal ended up in front of a microphone addressing the press. If his listeners expected him to exercise his office by defending the traditional faith of Sweden, they were surprised because what he did instead was to offer a three-point ethic for engaging religious strangers, whether they were fresh from the other side of the world or had been living for generations on the other side of town. First he said, if you're trying to understand another religion, ask its adherents and not its enemies. Second, don't compare your best to their worst. Third, leave room for holy envy. He didn't explain what he meant by the last one, but as soon as I heard the two words together, they drew me in, as intriguing as divine decadence, or perhaps good grief, an intriguing oxymoron. How could one of the deadly sins be holy? What might make it so? And why is it vital for religious understanding? The best way to test it out, I thought, was to introduce it to the students in my world religions classes at Piedmont College in rural Georgia, 
Though they came from many parts of the U.S. and from some other countries as well, most identified as Christian, at least culturally Christian, whether they were at Piedmont by choice or by parental fiat, they lived in what Flannery O'Connor once called the Christ-haunted South. The rural county surrounding the college where I still live has one bowling alley, don't know what you call them here, one movie theater, three rivers, and 62 churches. It's not London. Still, there were plenty of students using their distance from home to get some distance on their home religion as well, confident that they had a lock on the basic tenets of Christian faith, one God, one Son, one way, one truth, one life. This may help explain why Religion 101, Religions of the World, was always full for 20 years, every semester, often with a waiting list, because students had questions about religion that they could not ask at home or at church, or because they weren't satisfied with the answers they got there, both about their own faith and the faith of others. Once word got out that you could not pass my class without worshiping false idols, and more importantly, that there were free meals after the field trips, students didn't even ask to see the syllabus before they signed up, they were in. What I knew, and they didn't, was that they were in for more than a scenic tour of the world's great religions, though that's what the textbook offered. Colorful maps, concise timelines, photos worthy of National Geographic, and essential vocabulary words for each of the five religions that we studied in class. But there was nothing to smell in that book. There was nothing to eat in that book. There was no music. There was no silence. There was no body heat. That's why field trips became such an essential part of the course, because they gave students a chance to get off the tour bus and meet people who complicated things for them. Kind and funny and generous people who did not match their stereotypes of Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, or even other Christians. People who said inspiring things, who forgot to turn their cell phones off, who made tea for them, who said, what a great question, or said, come back anytime. Once that happened, there was no going back. Students would never again believe everything they thought or everything they were told about people of other faiths. When they got back on the bus, their certainty had a great big crack in it, which is, after all, what the best kind of education is designed to do, to shake the ground so hard that the brittle things break and the flimsy things fall apart clearing new space for more resilient things to be put in place. It could have happened in the classroom, I suppose. I could have invited practitioners of different faiths to come visit us instead of going to visit them. It would have been a lot cheaper. It would have been a lot easier, too. I wouldn't have had to crawl down the aisle of the bus after all the students had gotten off to pick up their forgotten water bottles and candy wrappers. 
I wouldn't have had to take home mountains of Indian food they left uneaten because it wasn't fried chicken. But if I had invited visitors to class instead, the burden would have been on the visitors to find the college, find the classroom, enter it to 25 pairs of staring eyes, endure my introduction, say something to put everyone at ease, and then spend the next, oh, 60 minutes summing up the entire beauty and meaning of their faith as its sole representative before the bell rang. I did try it a couple of times, but I got jealous of the vulnerability of my guests. Watching them rise to the challenge of being perfect strangers, I decided that my students and I ought to be doing that instead. We ought to be leaving our comfort zone to go meet other people in theirs, entering their sacred spaces without knowing the rules, without even knowing whether we had dressed properly or where to put our shoes. To offer hospitality is one thing, it puts you in charge. But to receive hospitality, that's something else altogether, especially when you and your religion are used to being in charge. Being a guest can transform you in ways that being a host never will. It levels the playing field. It puts you in receiving mode, which has a lot less ego in it than giving mode. It also accelerates the learning curve as you find yourself in the minority for once, seeing the world through other people's lenses instead of expecting them to get used to yours. One of the biggest surprises for students who got off the bus was that no one tried to convert them. Since the Christians expected others to do to them what they had done to others, they were prepared to resist the evangelization that they knew was coming. As often as I assured them that visiting a Buddhist monastery would not make them Buddhist, any more than visiting France would make them French, they made sure I knew what they would and would not do when they got to that place. They would not bow when the teacher came in the room. They would keep their eyes open when the devotees closed theirs. They would trust Jesus to know they were there for extra credit and not for enlightenment. <laughs> One of my favorite students was named Brian. He was an Episcopalian, so he was up for enlightenment, but he still didn't know what to expect. On the Tuesday evening, we attended a public lecture at the Drepung Losaling Tibetan Buddhist Monastery in Atlanta. Brian decided he wanted to try, for the first time, sitting on a meditation cushion instead of in a folding chair. While the other students found their zones of safety, Brian chose a plump black zafu in the third row on the right, while I settled into a chair two rows behind him. We stood with everyone else when the teacher came into the room, peer pressure proving stronger than prior resolve. Then we sat back down as the teacher for the evening, a lama in full orange robes, fiddled with the lapel mic. He was a Tibetan monk who looked every bit the part, sitting cross-legged at a low teaching desk in front of an altar populated by a great many Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Gurus, and Rinpoches. First he led the regular Tuesday night crowd in a chant that they all knew by heart. Then he invited everyone to spend five minutes in silent meditation before he began his talk 
on cultivating happiness. That was the title. I tried not to look around at the other students, putting more pressure on them, to see how they were doing, but Brian was right in front of me, so I had no choice but to notice how much effort he was putting into sitting straight and holding still without falling asleep. College students are always tired. College teachers are always tired. So I closed my eyes until the teacher cleared his throat <clears> to let us know our time was up. He had to clear it a few more times before he could get a full sentence out without croaking. Maybe it was all the chanting, maybe it was pollen. Then he had to move his microphone around on his robe some more when people in the back of the room said they couldn't hear. Finally, after taking a sip of the hot tea that someone slid in front of him, he finally got down to business. Had we ever noticed, he said in his melodic accent, how quickly our unhappiness with not being in a relationship turned into our unhappiness with the new relationship we had? Had we ever noticed how soon our unhappiness with not having a job turned into unhappiness with the new job we had? In no more than four sentences, he had made his point our unhappiness is not dependent on our circumstances, which are always changing. Tapping his temple with the fingers of his right hand, the teacher proposed that our unhappiness is in here, as we persist in locating the source of all our problems out there. While we spin our wheels trying to control things beyond our control, we ignore the one thing that is within our power to change, which is our way of seeing things. When the monk took another sip of tea, Brian turned his head fully around so that I could see his face, eyes wide, eyebrows up, mouthing his words in a big way to make sure that I got what he was saying. And what he was saying was, this is just about life. He made his eyes even wider. This is just about life. At the end of the hour, the teacher wrapped up his talk with another brief period of meditation. Later, when I read Brian's field trip report, I learned about his experience on the Zafu, including what happened to him at the very end. It was his first attempt at meditation, he wrote, so he could hardly believe it when he felt a deep warmth spreading up his left leg toward his heart. My very first time, he wrote, and I was being given a taste of enlightenment. Then he opened his eyes, and he saw the person next to him had spilled her coffee, <laughs> which was wicking up the left leg of his blue jeans. I saved that report. He's 35 now. I still read it along with one written by a young man who had been much more concerned than Brian about going to a Buddhist monastery. Here's what he wrote. There may have been some rituals and ceremonies that I was not sure I wanted to take part in, but when we arrived, it was different. To his surprise, he said, he was able to clear his mind during the brief meditation periods, reaching a place of calm that was entirely new to him. His words again coming up. The whole experience made me think about changing my perspective on what is going on in my life. Not about changing my religion, but the way I look at things. This may be what we have been learning in class about different worldviews. 
but I did not understand the concept until I saw it firsthand at the monastery. So there's that crack again. Learning the word worldview is troubling enough if you never knew you had one. But once you visit another one that is not as disturbing as you thought it might be, it's hard to deny that there are plural ways of seeing the world, of being in the world, which don't match up as neatly as you might have hoped. All religions are not alike. There are as many irreconcilable differences between them as within them. Remember the Lutherans and the Mormons? And still, there is a great deal to be gained by visiting the neighbors, even if you are a less than perfect stranger. Because how else could you have seen your own faith more clearly without seeing yours alongside theirs, the best of theirs? alongside the best of yours, without any illusions about the worst you both can do to the central teachings of your different religions. As you can imagine, it was often difficult for Christian students to see something lovely in another faith. The divine singular was so much a part of their religion, one God, one son, one way, one truth, one life, that to see beauty in another way, felt like treason to them. When they experienced a new calm at a Buddhist monastery, or when they sensed the deep reverence of a Muslim's five times daily prayer, it felt like telling Jesus they were seeing someone else. When they loved the drumming at the Krishna temple, or the sweet peace at the Friday night Shabbat service at the synagogue, it made them worry that they were losing their faith. One of the things that always slapped my heart hard was hearing from those who had called home, all excited to share what they were learning in class, only to receive a warning about falling for all that stuff or opening your mind so far that your brains are falling out. I think that's why they took to the concept of holy envy so gratefully, not because they cared who Christer Stendhal was or why he put those two words together in the first place, but because they had already experienced the envy and they were relieved to think there might be something holy in it. With just a little help, they began to see how admiring the high school football players who kept training for their championship game while fasting during the month of Ramadan that that might inspire them to greater spiritual courage themselves. After a few of them kept a modified kosher diet for a class project, they wrote about how hard it was to find anything to eat in the, high, in the cafeteria and how much new regard they had for Jews who thought of God before every bite they took. One student wrote this, I honestly was not expecting to learn anything from this assignment. I just thought it looked easy. Who knew food could teach you life lessons? Even students who identified themselves as atheist, agnostic, humanist, or simply undecided, warmed to the idea of holy envy, which they adapted to meet them where they were. One student wrote this, I have been ignited by holy envy in a lot of ways this semester. For instance, I love the Hindu notion that karma is not measured or judged by a higher power. You are responsible for your own actions. 
Whether I decide to believe in a religion or not, he said, I will keep this moral code of self-accountability with me. Another student wrote this. When it comes to holy envy, one thing really sticks out in my mind. When we went to the mosque on our field trip, the imam spoke to us ahead of time, and what he told us is my holy envy. He told us how he doesn't wish to convert us to Islam. He just wants us to be the best people we can be, regardless of religion. This was the most beautiful thing I have ever heard, and it's my holy envy because I wish Christianity was this way. Grading final exams like these was a dismal exercise. Because how do you grade the grammar in an answer like that? How do you come up with an objective standard for measuring a student's heightened empathy or increased ability to tolerate existential ambiguity? I never figured out how to put that on a rubric. <laughs> After a couple of years of suffering with students who scored lower on their finals than they had on any of their quizzes, I finally accepted what the results were telling me. It was the experience of the class and not the content, not the information that was transformative for them. This was the best class I have ever taken in college, one student wrote at the bottom of his final exam on which he barely earned a D. For 15 weeks, this student and others like him had lived with the kinds of questions that no textbook, no teacher can answer. They had considered the often contradictory answers of five great religions, discovering more diversity within the religions than they had ever imagined. Their vocabulary list had well over 100 words on it in five different languages. Their timeline covered 4,000 years and seven continents. By the time they got to the final exam, they had learned so many new things about so many old religions that the lines between them blurred. Oh, do the four noble truths go with Buddhism or Islam? Does Talmud belong to Hinduism or Judaism? Did Constantine start the Protestant Reformation? <laughs> These were such elementary questions, all oh, that basic religious literacy depended on remembering the right answers to them. But students did not hang on to the right answers as well as either of us would have hoped. When they finished the class, it was the relationships they remembered. How is Swami Yogeshananda at the Vedanta Center? One young woman asked me in the hallway a full year after she'd taken the course. I still think he needs a cat. Another wrote to ask if he could tag along with my current class's field trip to the mosque since he thought of another question that he wanted to ask our guide Bilal. A couple engaged to be married returned to Drepung Losaling Monastery on their own time to learn more about medicine Buddha practice. When I showed up with a gaggle of current students for a field trip one Tuesday night, they were already there, sitting in the second row of the Dharma Hall on Zafus with their legs crossed impressively. Later they wrote to let me know they had become Episcopalians and they were very active in their church. 
There are so many problems with this concept of holy envy. I can't begin to tell you. Read the book to find out, or you can just read the headlines. 11 killed in synagogue massacre, suspect charged with 29 counts. Terror attacks at New Zealand mosques leave 50 people dead. At least 200 dead in Easter Day attacks on Sri Lanka churches. How do you keep saying leave room for holy envy under headlines like that? How do you keep believing that the way of life is to love your neighbor as yourself or to do unto others as you would have them do unto you? I wish I knew. All I know is what I learned from 20 years worth of college students and from the people of many faiths who welcomed us into their most sacred spaces though we did not have a clue. Because our hosts were out on the edges, at the doors of their own traditions, welcoming us in from the edges of ours, we found a local way to start being the change we sought in the world. Though we did not speak each other's religious languages or imagine the divine in the same way. As it turned out, what we had most in common with all of our neighbors was not our religion, but our humanity embodied in such astonishingly diverse ways that it began to seem this might be the Creator's will instead of a deviation from it. Neighbors whose gift to each other is not our sameness, but our difference, our ability to shake each other's foundations so that the cracks in our separate certainties open up and when we reach out to steady ourselves to find human hands as warm and woundable as our own reaching out to us as well. For Christians in particular, this seems to me a basic tenet of our faith. To see God's image in those who are not made in our image. To seek and serve Christ in all persons loving our neighbors as ourselves to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. So is it working yet? Oh, please, don't ask me that. It's the wrong question. Are we cracked open yet? That's a better question. I'm definitely cracked. Holy Envy did that to me. Best question. Why have faith at all? Is it to make sure you get to heaven? Is it to rest in the confidence that you have a lock on God? Or is it to discover how many faces God has and to practice giving yourself away every day to some perfect stranger as you learn how to be a better stranger yourself? You'll be the judge of that. Whatever you decide, thank you and thank Paula and my host at this cathedral Thank you for being here, for opening your minds so wide that your hearts fall out, and for being part of this pop-up community tonight in this great cathedral, in this vibrant and vitally generous city which inspires such holy envy in me. Thank you. Thank you.
Barbara, thank you. I told you it was going to be a good evening, didn't I? Let me start by asking you a few questions of my own before we turn to other people's questions. You started by talking about Krista Stendhal's three guides for engaging with world religions. Um, after now having taught religion for a few years, shall we call it, would you like to add to his list? Is there anything you'd want to add to what he said? That was 1985, and sometimes when I look at that, the rules are still terrific, but the circumstances are so different. Um, and I would point out, I, I would, because you and I have talked about this, start local, start locally, because he did. He started in Stockholm in his neighborhood with things that were happening there. And I think so often um, we go to global headlines instead or things happening other places which are not to be ignored, but which may help us ignore the local, the local neighborhood and the people that we're closest to. So the stories that continue to inspire me about the things that happen next door. So I would add bullet four, start at home. Yes. And um, we should confess, we, we, we've already had a conversation this week on Tuesday in a very different place in Birmingham. And um, it does feel as though a conversation in London about how we engage with other religions is, is similar, but in other ways very different from a conversation in Birmingham. It is. And again, very different. From, from Clarksville, Georgia yes. and Atlanta, yes. yes. One of the things that really struck me when I was reading your book, and which I loved, was that it, is, it, it has its main point, which is about how we engage with religions, but its sub-point is teaching, mm. how we do teaching and learning. If you haven't read the book, there is an absolutely beautiful description of an opening class um, that Barbara describes. Would you like just to tell everyone, because I, I shamed myself, I was reading her book on the train in the quiet carriage, and it was so good, I gave a big guffaw and gained evil looks from people around me. Uh. Would you like to describe it so that other people can enjoy it too? It was my first day of class, of coming out of 15 years of congregational ministry into a college classroom without adequate preparation, I might add. And for some reason, I was assigned an 8 a.m. class in a room that could have passed for an autopsy suite. And I learned things that day, though, that held true for the next 20 years, which is the people who sit in the front row will have taken two full pages of notes by the end of the first day when all you've done is go over the syllabus. Uh, the people on the back row uh, will include a number of um, athletes who are eating breakfast and whose main question about the syllabus is whether they can eat in class and wear their hats. And in the middle will be the people who sleep during the first day of class and quite often after that. And you feel so badly for them. Part of you wants to pound the table and part of you wants to tell everyone just to stand up quietly and leave so that when they wake up, they'll be all alone, but rested. Um, so that's what Paula is remembering. And that did hold true. To, to notice where people sit on the first day of class tells you a great deal about what's to come. So what did you learn about teaching from your experience? I learned I could not use the same syllabus two semesters in a row. So that equals about 40 syllabi over the years. Um, partly because every community of students was different. You know, I always did a survey on day one to sort of find out where people were 
on the topic and why they were there, and it, it meant it was never the same group as it was last time. Uh, and all it took, frankly, was, was one new arrival from, say, Afghanistan, you know, who, who knew a whole different Islam than the Islam that was in the textbook to shake things up. You know, all it took was one Orthodox Jew to show up and complain about how little kosher food there was on campus to change the syllabus. Um, so the main thing I learned is that the world of religions was always changing, and that meant any class on the religions of the world would change every single semester. And even the textbooks changed a great deal over 20 years. So I thought I could use old yellow index cards like some of my professors did, but I think they were teaching great literature. <laughs> they certainly weren't teaching Paul, I know, <laughs> same experience. Whenever I've written any book, um, I've always had that moment just before it comes out where I wake up in the middle of the night and say, people are going to hate this book because... Did you have any of those thoughts before this book came out? So remember what you said in my introduction? It's so helpful to hear you say that <laughs> because I wake up every time and say not only they're going to hate it, but I got it all wrong yeah. and yeah. or it's already all been said. Why am I just repeating the obvious? So those are the three, right? Yes. I share, yeah. I share that deeply. Yes. And I, I spend, after a book's come out, I spend a a time in a frenzy waiting for the person to find the fundamental flaw in it. Mm -hmm. That will mean that I shouldn't have written it in the first place. And thanks to Amazon, there are people who yeah. hate it. And, they're yes. and, they're <laughs> and now you yeah, know about that's it. That's right, and they're, they're <laughs> very eloquent about why they hate it. <laughs> Let's turn to some of the audience questions. Um, the first question that came in um, is a really tough one. So why don't we start with really the hard end. Um, does your approach to religion naturally leave, lead to universalism? <laughs> Discuss. I think Discuss. we should ask on to the end. I am sometimes um, accused of being a theologian and I'm not a very good one, but let's try this. It has helped me a great deal to begin to see my own tradition, which makes much of its singularity. Um, it has helped me to begin to see that something can be singular and unique, but not the only, but not the only. Um, so uh, I'm enough of a biblical scholar to know I could make a case for universalism um, and enough of a scholar to know I could make a case for there being no way but one way. Um, but I'm content to introduce people um, to students who were introduced to people and let them make of it what they will. Uh, I don't think I have enough power right now to, to make a, a, a universal case for universalism. But I do find, let me, let me add though, that when I speak more and more to people in their 20s and 30s, it's not universalism, but that is there. Multiple religious identity is there. Interspirituality is there. Um, increasing humanism, agnosticism, atheism are there. So it, my view will certainly lead to pluralism. Is that the, the that, yeah, mm. certainly it will. And, and that will be difficult in its own ways. And kind of on the back of that, um, the verse that is so often cited. John 14, six. There you go. How did I that know? One. 
How did I know? What would you say to somebody who came up to you and said, mm-hmm. John 14, 6? Mm-hmm. We don't even have to no, use the conditional don't. verb. We can say, what do I say? Yes. So <laughs> it's interesting to me that, that how, how often the New Testament can be reduced to one verse <laughs> instead of one verse being read through the whole of the New Testament. You know, it's, I have um, uh, one of those monocle kind of periscopes at home, and it's interesting which way you look at it. So, so one thing I can say to people who bring up John 14, 6 is, tell me why that matters so much to you. And, and then I could say, have you ever read John 12, 44? And they'll say, no, never. What's, what's John 12, 44? And I'll say, well, same Jesus, same gospel, saying, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. It's not a contradiction, but it's an interesting verse. And, and I often then will ask, why do you suppose everyone knows John 14, 6 and no one knows I'm John 12:44? I'm just 12, being 44? asked to tell everyone what John 14, 6 is. You might be really pleased to know that someone not everybody does not knows. Yes. <laughs> I, I should at this point just let some in the audience say it in unison. But it is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now do you know? You've heard it before, you just didn't know it was John 14, 6. Okay. It's on coffee cups and key rings and T-shirts and tea towels. Rich magnets. And I've never seen John 12, 44. Um, n- n- you know, nor have I seen the verse in Mark where Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. <laughs> There's some terrific verses that have been completely ignored. <laughs> We could make a little industry, don't yeah. you think? Oh. Yeah, and, and Paula knows one, one thing I like to ask um, Christians is why, why do we privilege the verses we do? Why do we, why do we love the ones we love and why do we ignore the ones we ignore? And, and could it be that we love the ones that tell us we're right? Mm-hmm. And could those be the ones we embroider? And, and could the ones who ask us some questions about that be the ones we let go? One of early on in your talk, you talked about um, not matching our best with other people's worst. <laughs> what is our best? Oh, I love hearing that from people of other faiths. Our our best is that we're the love way. You know, when I talk to um, friends schooled in Hindu teaching about the devotional way, the bhakti way, they'll say, "You Christians are all you know. You're 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 the lovers." You're the great devotees, you know, of our Lord Jesus. Uh, So I hear that. I hear that we're the peacemakers. I sat with a friend once from Egypt, and we spoke of Israel and Palestine, and she said, I think the Muslims and the Jews may have run out of steam here. It's up to you Christians. And I said, really? And she said, well, you are the peacemakers, aren't you? And I thought, how wonderful that you think that, that we're peaceful and bridge builders, um, so, so those are the best. And then truly the Sermon on the Mount. You know, what a huge inspiration to Tolstoy who in turn influenced Gandhi. I never knew Gandhi got it from Tolstoy who got it from the Gospel of Matthew, but, but the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, you know, those teachings have got some uh, legs um, for people of many faiths and no particular faith. That's among the best that we have. So is it perhaps worth turning towards the Christian tradition? Sure. Because there are a couple of chapters in your book in which you talk about holy envy towards other people from 
of Christian faith as well as people from other faith. Um, and there's a, a kind of little clutch of questions coming in um, about how we relate to other Christians, um, which is as challenging sometimes as how we relate to people of other faiths. Um, and there was a, a um, here we go, Here's a, let me ask you this one, this is a great one. How can we have holy envy of those whose agrees we so strongly disagree with, e.g. fundamentalists? <laughs> go. Um, this is where I get really Christian, all right? Uh, this is where I do turn to the teachings I just mentioned. Uh, and as I've traveled with Holy Envy, it, it, was, it was really dreadful in one place. I said, I get this question everywhere I go with the book, but what do we do about the excluders? You know, what do we do about the people who have no interest in a book like this? And I said, tell them not to read it. <laughs> you know, but but it, it, in one place I said, I know what, we need to exclude the excluders. And I got a round of applause. And I said, no, 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 that was, that was ironic. You know, that that's, no, you can't, you know, if you hate the haters and exclude the excluders, but, but I have also joked, most people would much rather go to lunch with the Dalai Lama than a member of their own congregation with whom they disagree. You know, or in my, in my county, someone who cancels out my, my government vote every time for 25 years. But those are my neighbors. Those are the neighbors I've been given to love. So this book quickly, if you're paying attention, will devolve into every kind of difference you can think of. You know, that should you decide to take anything about um, welcoming the stranger which in Matthew 28, the, the parable of the sheep and the goats, is often the one disguise of Jesus's that people forget. They remember the hungry and the poor and those in prison and the sick, but they forget that Jesus said, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Uh, so it's always interesting to me to, to go back to that piece as well. What does holy envy look like for you? You said tantalizing in, in your talk um, that Krista Stendhal never told us what he meant. Um, if Barbara Brown Taylor were to tell Krista Stendhal what he meant, what does it mean for you? I think I hinted at it, which is it is possible for me to find lovely things and things I believe are, are fully of God and fully revelatory of God in other faiths and that doesn't make me a traitor to my own. Not everyone will reach that conclusion. Um, but holy envy also, I've been working it out because I've experienced unholy envy. <laughs> I've experienced other kinds, especially because I'm a member not only of a dominant tradition where I live, but of a dominant ethnicity, color, and culture where I live. Um, so I have noticed uh, ways in which the dominant culture can first of all proclaim that we are all one. This is the universalism perhaps. And I've heard people respond, we don't want to be one with you. In fact, I had one Jew say to me, that's what empire always says before they swallow you up. And I thought, oh, assimilation would be an unholy envy. And appropriation would be another kind of unholy envy. And, and that's a very lively question right now. I can get in trouble quickly where I come from by talking about the Monday Thursday Seder service, where a Jewish tradition is taken and repurposed and re-languaged in ways that would not communicate at all to its home community. Or more and more, surprisingly, Christians who've been incredibly renewed and reinvigorated by yoga uh, and, and want to start um, a Christian yoga, 
you know, put different prayers, different images. And I met the most wonderful person last week who said, oh no, there's no Christian yoga, but there's yoga for Christians. And I thought, well, that's kind of a Zen koan I'm going to go think about for a while. So, um, so I would, um, there are unholy kinds of envy, poaching. Native American traditions are poached widely where I live. You know, anybody deciding he or she can host a sweat lodge, you know, or initiate people into this or that, or, or start a drumming circle. And I'm not saying that, that my responses to these things are set or correct, but, but it, it does seem I found my way to a holier kind of envy by becoming aware of the less holy ways in which um, people of faith seek unity. We've been talking a lot about people of faith. So let's constray into talking about atheists and agnostics. Um, what holy envy might you have towards people who de self-declare themselves to be atheist? It depends on whether they're mean people or not. <laughs> That's only halfway a funny answer. I mean, I think in everything I'm talking about tonight, it helps a lot to have um, partners who are looking for... for, for conversation and discussion and dialogue because I've been across plenty of picket lines you know with people holding up the opposite sign and, and th all that really does is is get those on my side good and enraged about our our cause so um, atheism agnostic humanist I'm always interested in how people self-identify and I'm especially interested in the stories behind that mm. Um, whether it was being raised in a household, you know, of no particular religious persuasion, or in my case, raised in a household where I was being protected from religion, mm. you know, by parents who, who thought that would be harmful to me. So how do people come to decide they are atheist, agnostic, humanist, however they are undecided, which I, or multi-religious? or interspiritual, um, I'm always interested in that. But, but if, if they are people who want to talk, I've, I've quite often found that if we try to convert each other, you, you think you know what I'm gonna say, but if, if we've got some ground rules, it's actually a pretty wonderful exercise. You know, it's pretty wonderful to, to go ahead and debate with someone, but we've agreed already that we're gonna share the airspace, we're both gonna talk, and we're gonna do our best to convince the other, and then we go have a drink, you know, or a cup of coffee, or something, so. Um, I think you'd have to tell me about that here because the numbers are higher. Mm -hmm. The numbers are creeping in the U.S., but they are more the, the spiritual but not religious or the unaffiliated. And the, the numbers of those who are very clear about being atheist are much smaller within a four times larger percentage of unaffiliated, which has for me just a lot of question marks in it. You know, it's, it's um, as Phyllis Tickle said, the Christian church is growing, going through a great rummage sale right now. And there's a lot on the lawn as people decide what to keep and what to let go. And I'm being led by younger generations more than ever. Someone today said, I educated my children and now my children are educating me. I think one of the questions that emerges for a lot of people when we're talking about this um, topic is, is there not a danger of losing our Christian roots? We've got a number of questions that are around that. Um, how do we keep our distinctiveness? Are we not in danger of losing our rootedness in our faith? Um, would you like to reflect on that a little bit? Shall I sing, and they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love? Uh, Please do, it, if you'd it, like it, to. <laughs> I, I think it depends on how you reinforce your distinctiveness. How do you learn your distinctiveness? Um, I, I have found, and it's not 
easy, but I have found my Christian distinctiveness has become uh, more, more deeply etched as I engage in conversation with people who do not share it because they ask me questions no other Christian would ask. They don't accept the answers that most other Christians would accept. They have other sacred texts, and I would say even non-religious texts, all the way from Thoreau to Walt Whitman to, the, to Rumi. They have, they have different sources they cite authoritatively, so that I have uh, not had to, I've been called to, more deeply explore and own Christian faith than ever before, and along the way have gained greater confidence in my ability to be with other people without feeling as if I have to have on a coat of armor or be armed in some way. So that's up to everyone. As I said near the end, you'll be the judge of that. You'll be the judge of that. Um, but it at least seems richly possible to me and well attested that there is a possibility of engaging people of different faiths and finding your own deepened and finding your own challenged, deepened, stre strengthened, maybe uh, softened, softened, yes. made more neighborly. Yes. Um, and I think there is something in that, isn't there, about um, that recognition that we aren't in a kind of a win or lose here. Um, sometimes it, the whole picture is set up that if you don't believe everything here sorry what i'm trying to say is that if you if if you if you have your open heart then the da the danger is you're going to all your faith will fall out of your open heart mm -hmm. um and what you're saying is actually your open heart can fill rather than mm -hmm. and sometimes things do fall out of an open mm -hmm. heart it's amazing what can fall out of an open heart um, but since you've mentioned sort of the win or lose it is worth mentioning that religion never arrives by itself. It arrives with history. It arrives with culture, ethnicity, color. It arrives with foreign policy. It arrives with empire. And it's very interesting to me to look at the religions of the world in terms of their history with empire, uh, with colonialism, with people who came in with their own religions and imposed them, um, and, and what that does to a religion's sense of itself when it has the force of empire behind it, and then you say, um, you, you said something about losing, there may be a great deal to lose, mm. you know, in terms of uh, assumptions uh, about the dominant group, or the, or the group who holds the most seats in an elected government, or the group who owns the loveliest houses of worship in town, or, you know, the group who has the most kids. I mean, there, there may be a great deal to lose if one is used to seeing oneself in a certain way. And yet, I am a Christian, <laughs> and I've worshipped most days of my life in front of someone on a cross. And if that isn't about losing to empire, then I don't know what is. So I have that image guides a lot of my fears about what I stand to lose in the way of building and vocation, funding, budget, numbers, dominance, control of heaven and earth. And uh, someone's um, asked a question which I, I think relates this very, to this very strongly. Um, Jesus called us to lose our lives and gain everything. Um, do you think that relates to what you're talking about here? It does, and it's been interesting to me. Again, I'll speak only about the US. 
I am in what's called mainline, a mainline denomination. And while evangelical churches and post-evangelical and re-evangelical churches are growing and numerous and have parking lot attendants you know, that go on forever, I'm in the mainline church, which is so concerned about its future. And it's, it's not an idle concern. You know, I pass many churches in Atlanta that were vibrant when I was a young woman there, and they're now performing venues and coffee shops and art galleries, and in one case, condominiums. Uh, so they're being repurposed. And yet, here's the question that keeps coming to me. What would it look like for a church to give its life? You know, individual Christians are called to take up their crosses and surrender themselves somehow, to lose themselves, to empty themselves. As we just said at the Ascension Service, what does it look like for a church? Um, in my area, a dominant church. What, it, what would it look like for a church to empty itself out for others? That's just a question. It's, it's quite an interesting question. And would that equal losing the church? Or is it time to redefine the church? It, it is being redefined, and it will be redefined. But I find quite a, quite a number of people who could more properly, I think, phrase it as, as losing the familiar institutions of the church, which is not inconsiderable. Bivocational ministry is coming up where I live, where you will, you'll be pastor of a congregation, but you'll do something else for a living, and it will change the ministry and change the church. In what way? That's an interesting... I'm looking forward to it. I, it's because I don't have to do it. But, um, <laughs> but already, um, and I don't want to make a huge generalization, but already African-American churches and you know, churches that don't have a lot of money are so used to this. They've been doing this forever, where the preacher does something else during the week and then, and then comes in on, and preaches and teaches on Sunday and recruits a whole lot of help from other people for pastoral care and service in the community. So that's a norm mm -hmm. in a lot of communities of color. And I think it is the more well-funded, whiter churches that are, that are going yikes but there, there are plenty of um, neighboring churches to learn from about how that looks. It'll also change language, and I think quite a few of my favorite words will go away. Sacristy and narthex and purificator. And, you know, <laughs> I, even thought, I even thought, why can't we just call Whitsunday the, how do you say it here, Whitsunday? How do you say it? Whitsun. Mm. Why don't we just call it the Sunday before Ascension Day? Is that what it is? No, Whitsun is Pentecost. Oh, sorry. Why don't we just call it Pentecost. Well, trouble is Pentecost doesn't mean anything either. Does it? We'll do it later. We're going to have some of our favorite words. You know, if we want to communicate some of our favorite words. I just hate that as an Episcopalian. I just hate that. I became an Episcopalian like some people become Masons, you know. I just wanted the handshake, the language, the hat. <laughs> the, I wanted in so badly. I wanted to learn the language. And now a lot of it is um, changing. I I shall come back, back to the questions in a moment, but I was recently teaching some young missioners and I got them to write, um, the, I painted a scenario that a bus was coming and they could see it was coming. And just as they saw it was coming, the person next to them said, you're a Christian, tell me about your faith. <laughs> and I got them to, each of them to, to say what they would say. And then I got them to say it all without jargon. Oh, 
And what was really interesting was that they really struggled. Mm-hmm. Every single one had mm-hmm. the fancy words of mm-hmm. Christianity that um, were inner words rather than outer words. And I think that's one of the challenges, isn't it? And Paula knows we're in danger of now just talking to each other, but I have to say one thing back. <laughs> I, because I do writing workshops, sometimes yes. it's quite interesting to have people identify central words of Christian faith and then write something about an experience of the holy or the divine and don't use any of those words. Excellent. And it's, oh, Excellent. some fantastic writing comes out mm. of that. It's so embodied. That's your next book. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've touched on it just now, and, and there's a number of questions that have come in about this, um, which is around evangelism. Mm-hmm. Um, given how you are engaging with people of other faith, mm-hmm. what do you say about evangelism in that context? How do we, when Jesus says, go to the nations and make disciples, mm-hmm. and make disciples of all nations. In one verse, in one yeah. verse. Yeah. Um, what, what do we do in that context when we're thinking about our relationship with other religions? Well, I mentioned some of it a moment ago. Again, it's been interesting with students who have a lot of energy for that, simply to set different ground rules, which is if you're going into a conversation intent on conversion, are you open to being converted yourself? Um, if you're not, you might want to think about that. And if you're clear you're not open to that, then could you take turns, you know, asking questions and talking back and forth? And, and you might even, if you're really brave, halfway through say, how am I doing with this? Are you, are you feeling like you want to do this or not? So it's, it's quite interesting. If it became more dialogical, it, it would be a different kind of process. Um, for myself, the evangelism takes the form of, oh, hopeless day, living the kind of life someone might want to ask me about. I have two sisters, neither of whom are, are churched. And, and uh, one of them's in her 60s now, and I say, you sure there's nothing you want to ask me? <laughs> she, she doesn't. Now, that may be because she's my sister. But it, it, you know, it's an interesting challenge if they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Does anybody want to ask me about my love, my love? Um, so that's one challenge. Gandhi called it the evangelism of the rose. You know, is there any possibility, not me by myself, but that my community could draw people to smell our rose because it's lovely, mm. you know, and, and not because we, we go out and channel the, the stream of traffic into the rose garden. Um, and, and then the, the final thing would be, I, I have begun to see the good news of God in Christ as God means to heal the world. And based on my reading of the New Testament and Jesus' many encounters with people who did not share his faith, that he was welcoming of any partners who would take part in the healing of the world and who would step up themselves to be healed, to go tell the good news of the possibility of healing. So that won't suit a lot of Christians, but it does seem to me I get a good bit of Christian identity out of believing God means to heal the world. God has given me some wonderful resources for entering into the world in that spirit and to welcome partners of any and no faith who would like to to be about that with me, whether or not they ever ask me a question about my love, my love. Here's a great question. How many of your students changed, lost, and gained faith, or gained faith? So what proportion, um, and I think what the question's saying is, um, what proportion stayed the same, 
what proportion changed in a big way? Were there any that lost something that was really important to them? I wasn't very good at statistics, but I know you need a longitudinal study for this, all right? I had them for 15 <laughs> weeks. I had them for 15 weeks, so I can talk about what I saw happen in 15 weeks. Mm -hmm. But as for what happened in four years at college, what happened 10 years after that or 20 years after that, I don't have any way of measuring that. Um, two people pretty famously uh, became Jewish converts during their college years. But one had a Jewish parent and had been raised in a, a house with no particular faith and decided to become Jewish. Um, and the other um, came out of a, a mixed Christian background, very mixed, and, and was so drawn to Judaism that she too converted to Judaism. Those were the only two conversions I know of in 20 years, though you know there were many enthusiasms. There was one student when we studied Taoism that said, she said, that's it. She said, that's it for me. Where's the closest Taoist church? <laughs> you know, and another one, you know, there were tattoos. Many tattoos came out of world religions class as well. <laughs> and many alarming phone calls to parents. But it's always hard to separate that from late adolescent mm. finding your feet yeah. underneath you. Um, you know, and there was one student who, unfortunately, in a class on the New Testament, saw things he had never seen before, inconsistencies different accounts and, and dropped his plans to become ordained. So that was sorrowful to me because he'd been raised in a tradition that had never showed him those things before. And when he saw them, he was crushed. So here's to Bible study. There's another question that overlaps with this one, which I think is a really intriguing one, is that most of the students, well, we assume that most of the students you were teaching were late teens, early 20s. Um, is it harder for people who are older, who have had longer for their beliefs to solidify, to be able to engage with other religions, do you think? Gosh. I did have what we call non-traditional students, which meant older than the regular. And the one who jumped to my mind immediately was Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which I'm now encouraged to say all of instead of Mormon. But she ended up writing a kind of feminist manifesto based on Mormon hymnody and, and taking it to Salt Lake City. So she was in her 40s with five children. Um, you'd almost have to name your decades, but I've been quite surprised if, if I run into someone in 50s or 60s, they're quite often in a period of reformation themselves. So I'd almost go the opposite and say the older people get, especially if they've had rich and satisfying relationships in Christian tradition, they're ready for more. Mm. They're ready for deeper. Yeah. They're, they're ready to, to find who their partners might be in other faiths. And often they head straight to the Christian mystics you know, who are in company with the Hindu mystics and the Muslim mystics. And, but I, if, if anything, and it may only be the circles I travel in, it's some of the white-headed ones who are the most ripe for a reformation of the faith that has served them well to a point mm -hmm. and now is feeling like it has a short stop to mm -hmm. it. Now, here's a couple of political ones. Oh, I don't do politics. <laughs> well, you might, well, we'll see how we, how we go with both of them. The first one is focusing on the space that we're in at the moment. And it says, Hearing Barbara in St. Paul's, London, a monument to Christian imperialism. 
<laughs> recognizing the violent legacy of colonialism and empire. How does a church lose its life to save it? The churches that I have visited here, and there have just been four, but they have been great, beautiful, vast places. And, and I would say that all the way from the Abbey Cathedral in Bath to the Cathedral in Bristol to St. Paul's, I have looked at the way they have come out, whether it's simply signs all the way around the building about how it's being reconfigured, you know, to improve its carbon footprint or opening to the neighborhood or inviting drawings from the neighborhood or did you happen to see the number of people who came in here today or the bride? Uh, and who I take it is one of many out getting her wedding pictures, you know, made here. It seems to me, especially cathedral churches, certainly this could never have built, been built without quite a bit of imperial support, whether that is of the official government kind or just, you know, the, the meritocracy. But I look at the hospitality and the reinvention and the turning toward community and the changes in language that these great monuments are doing. And it is breathtaking. Mm -hmm. and, and there's some deep sadness and loss in it mm -hmm. and some, some real possibility of the Holy Spirit doing a new mm -hmm. thing. Holy Spirit has always turned the furniture upside down. <laughs> so... I don't know the answer to that, and it's not my place in this country to say, except to tell you what a visitor has seen, going from place to place to place and looking at the, the goodwill, the hospitality, the writing, the thinking, the rethinking that's going on every place I've been, four whole places. <laughs> so we've done a hard English question. There's a hard states question there. With the current political climate, oh, actually, no, with the current political climate, both in your country and in ours, so we're both in a difficult situation, do you have a struggle with losing hope? With? I think the, the footnote to that is, because we are. <laughs> <laughs> it has been an interesting time to be in the UK, I'll tell you that. I've read the newspaper more here than I have at home in a while. Um, I, I don't lose hope. And I think it's because I'm saddled with this crazy, my entrance into Christian faith came in my teenage years, and I came into Christianity on a strong tide of, of being counter to the culture. Mm. You know, it, it was the way I came in, is that the Christian job was, was not to mirror or support the, the culture or the current government, but it was to be a different kind of community. It was to be a beloved community who was good at love and, 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 and was about a kind of alt alternate. So there are ways in which I don't lose hope because I never really figured that the, the dream of all that was based on a term-limited mm. political leader, though I hope, in my case, the terms are short enough not to do permanent damage. That's quite enough of that. I, I will tell you this. I've got to tell you one thing. Our time is all right. I wrote a children's book um, this year on the Magi coming to visit Jesus, which he does only, by the way, in Matthew's gospel. There are no shepherds in Matthew. But, but I handed the book over to a children's illustrator who made King Herod have 
vividly orange hair and skin. And, and it was interesting, since I did not illustrate the book, to read it in several bookshops where people burst out laughing. I didn't even get it at first until I looked at how Herod's coloring was evocative. <laughs> That's great. So let's just leave that there. Yeah, we'll park that, shall we? <laughs> in a world where everything is changing, do you think we risk becoming everything for everyone? And I, I, th I think this question kind of emerges out of, um, actually both on your side of the pond and our side of the pond, people seem to be crying out for certainty. How do, what do, we, how do we respond to that desire for certainty when um, actually what we want to be saying is um, there's difference, but is there a danger in that? Do we risk being everything for everybody? And then I flipped the opposite. Or do we want to risk being no one to no one? Mm -hmm. And those aren't the alternatives. Yes. I, I like to talk a lot about the difference between certainty and faith because I have both. I have the wish for both. And yet, because I am a person of a certain age, my losses stack up even from a position of great privilege. Mm -hmm. So my certainties become fewer and fewer every day, and so do my illusions that my certainties will hold. Um, so that quite often, um, I find myself thinking instead about what it means to trust when I cannot know anything for sure. And then I have to ask what I trust. Even faith is an incomplete sentence for me. People tell me they have faith, and I want to say, in what? that what will happen. You have faith that what will happen. You have faith that what won't happen. Because guess what? It probably will, and it probably won't. Um, so it's a great time, I think, to, um, to question what those two postures are like, to be certain. And where does it get me in life to be certain? It has gotten me some places. And where does it get me in life to trust, though I don't know anything for certain? Um, and... At the same time, I want to be very careful, and I learned this in the classroom, that when people are new to faith, certainty is far more important than it is perhaps later. So I had to learn early on that when I encountered a vivid certainty, it was important for me to leave that alone. Because in many cases, it was a life preserver that was keeping someone out of dreadful depths of which I knew nothing. And, and the certainty was all that had air in it. So there, you know, there, there could be time later. They knew plenty about things over which they had no control. And there was no reason in the world for them to trust that. None. So, so I've learned to be respectful of certainty. Um, it's, it's not a general term. It's a very specific embodied kind of stance that people take in their relationships with what is beyond them. So I hope... I hope I remember what I just said. Well, and that's where we get back to holy envy, isn't it? Is that the people I know who are very certain, um, there are bits of that that I, I'm genuinely envious of. I'm envious and I can't forget. That's how I came to Christian faith was the certainty of two young women who knocked on my dorm room door one night and wouldn't leave until I got on my knees and said the Jesus prayer. And I halfway did it so they would go away. <laughs> And then the next day, um, the world seemed quite different to me. So whatever that divine humor was about, uh, without their certainty, I don't know that I would have mm. been launched on 
the same path that I was launched on because they were certain enough to be there. So we said tonight in the liturgy, faith is a great mystery. And I think certainty may turn out to be a great mystery too. Mm. But good luck with that, the certainty part. Here's a great one. After all you've learned about other traditions, I wonder why you personally still choose Christianity. First of all, you know how much I know about other traditions? This much. 20 years got me about that deep because it was 101 because I went back to the same places every time because I found hosts who were exemplars of their traditions. So did, I, did we have 201 where we got into the diversity within traditions? Did we get into 301 with um, oral traditions that didn't have sacred texts? What I know about other religions is this deep. And you know, truly and truly the honest answer to the question is because I was born where I was born. You know, I was born in a Christian culture, so that was the most magnificently represented and translated tradition to me. Um, I, I have no idea how it would have gone for me if I had been born in Tokyo instead, um, or in Alexandria, you know, or in Basra. I have no idea how it would have gone for me. Um, but with some choices before me, I have decided that I know a language pretty well. You know, I, I have been given away, I've majored in a religion for a long time so that I have a depth of language and, and of a knowledge of a history and of a way of practicing what I believe to be true that serves me well in conversations with other people. Why would I leave this? I even have this kind of idea that Christianity is the way that's open to all ways. I think I stole that from John Hick. British philosopher of religions, but, but I have the sense that this is a way that is open to all ways, and it might even be a way that is meant to transcend itself. Christianity might even be a way that's meant to ascend, <laughs> you know, that, that's meant to transcend itself. That's what I hear more and more from young people. Mm. I, I want to be Christian, but not if you're going to teach me only to be Christian. Can you teach me how being Christian will equip me to be with people who are not in, in more human, loving, compassionate, and helpful ways? That's a great request. I think it's time to kind of begin to wrap up, so let me ask you one final question. You've spent many years now engaging in holy envy. What have you learned that has transformed you the most in your holy envy? I wish I had a set answer to this question. You know, right this minute, okay, this is Thursday's answer. So Thursday's answer is the remarkable thing that happens when students go to Hindu or Buddhist places and are told to close their eyes and go in which can be called solipsism or the religion, but, but the idea being the divine is accessible here. You don't need someone there to tell you about the divine always. The divine is also here. And I think I could also find that in Quaker meeting, by the way. But, you know, but that has certainly been a challenge, that, that, tr that faith does not always come to me from outside, from books and speakers and podcasts, but that if I can be still enough, the divine is within me as well. And it's the same divine that is in every inspirited body that comes to mind. Um, there are 
practices of devotion in, in forms of traditional Islam and Judaism that are every minute of every day. And if I could practice a faith that I didn't forget about for vast amounts of time, that would probably be good for me. So I envy also these patterns of devotion that exceed anything I have ever tried for myself. I think that covers the Abrahamic traditions and the Asian traditions <laughs> well enough, so I could go on, but that's enough. Barbara, thank you so much. It's been a treat listening to you, mm. personal treat, conversing with you, and I hope that you've all enjoyed it as much as I have. Before we thank her properly, let me remind you that if you wish to buy one of her books, you may do so over at this table. She will be ready to sign books for you over at this table. Um, but before we get into um, the consumerist world of book sales, um, let us thank Barbara for everything oh, that she's you. brought us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.